Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. This week's podcast, we're taking from the WGCU Public Radio's daily call-in show, Gulf Coast Live, which usually has to do with news, arts, and community issues. But this week, we got to bring in Gina Birch and do a newsy version of Grape Minds on 90.1 FM in Southwest Florida. The reason? It's Zinfandel Day. The day before Thanksgiving is National Zinfandel Day, so we talked history, traced the grape's origins, and talked about Thanksgiving pairings. Enjoy. Welcome back to Gulf Coast Live. I'm Julie Glenn. The third Wednesday of November is National Zinfandel Day. It floats just like Thanksgiving and falls the day before that quintessentially American holiday and probably for a reason. It's been beloved as the American grape since it was first planted here before the Civil War. Today on the show, we're talking history and Zinfandel with my co-host on the WGCU podcast, Grape Minds, Gina Birch. Gina, thanks for coming in for Gulf Coast Live. Oh, my pleasure. It's always fun. So, Gina, first, tell me, do you remember your first encounter with the Zinfandel grape? Oh, indeed I do. It was the lovely pink white Zinfandel. I didn't even know um, white Zin. I didn't know if it was a grape or or a wine. I, I knew nothing about it. But I did know I was such a wine snob back then when I knew about White Zinfandel that I knew which brand I liked when I would go to a club. Oh, you did? Do I want Sutter Home or Behringer? Oh, of course I want Behringer, please. Oh, that's all you have is Sutter Home? No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was the beginning of my wine snobbery. Yeah, it it all begins with White Zinfandel. Um, Well, you know, Red (laughs) Zinfandel came on the scene in the mid-90s. I mean, it had Mm -hmm. been around for centuries, and we can get into that a little bit later. But do you remember the high-alcohol Big Jamie Zins that came out in the backlash against the sweet White Zin? Oh, definitely. And and it was just, it was like the pendulum swung from one end to the other end when it comes to this particular grape and how it was made. And, and it's funny that you talk about the mid '90s because I think that's when it was probably the first time that I had my really aha moment when it comes to food and wine and the and the pairing and how it's just such a cosmic explosion when you get it right. I was cooking a fancy meal with. I don't know, some kind of braised beef, and I thought, hmm, let's do some Zin. And I opened a bottle of Jack London, and it was like the heavens opened up for the first time, and I got it. I'm like, this is what a food and wine pairing is, and I love Zin, the red stuff, not the pink stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has that, um, every wine nerd has that moment when they realized that the food pairing and the wine pairing, it just worked out absolutely perfect. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about some Thanksgiving pairings. But first, let's take a look at uh, the myriad ways Zinfandel's can go. It can start white. It can Mm -hmm. be a pink white in spite of its name being white. It's made from the dark red Zinfandel grapes whose juice is separated from the skins and the seeds after crushing and then it's fermented like a white wine. Uh, White Zin is not fermented to be dry. It has a significant amount of uh, sugar and sweetness going on there and it's usually not barrel aged. And then you have another pink Zinfandel and this is rosé. So they're they're totally different. So if you see uh, a Zin on the bottle and it says rosé, be assured it's not going to be something sweet. Um, this has kind of been under the radar. Uh, it's fermented dry. This is a dry wine. The juices usually bled off after a very short amount of skin contact, giving the wine a deeper rose kind of color. It's light and spicy and berry flavored. And these are typically produced from less mature red Zinfandel grapes. And they receive little to no barrel aging. And they are yummy. And they, they were under the radar for a long time because nobody really paid attention to dry rosé because everybody thought it was going to taste sweet like sweet 
white zen. Well, at least here in America. The rest of the world got it. Oh, yeah. They knew better. They were way ahead of the curve on that one. But yeah, so now people have gone back to the Zinfandel, started to vinify it in a dry style. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Zinfandel table wine, which is regular old red wine made out of Zinfandel grapes, made the way that red wine is normally made with more skin contact and things like that. These wines usually have about uh, 13.5, 14.5% alcohol content. Mm-hmm. Uh, that skin contact during fermentation and aging in oak barrels bring, brings us wines with you know an intensely fruity character with balance and complexity, a little bit of spiciness sometimes, mm-hmm. the things that you want to expect out of a, a big red wine. So then you say the big red, and, and that is a style itself. This is the one what you were talking about earlier uh, that's sometimes called the fruit bomb. It's it's big and it's red and it's made from these grapes that are more ripe than usual. And it means uh, like the stewed fruit flavor that you get a lot more sugar. There's more sugar in the grape because they have the, the riper grape. So there's more sugar that's developed in the grape mm-hmm. itself. So then when you're making it into the wine, you have to turn more of that sugar into alcohol so it doesn't end up tasting sweet. And then you end up with um, some seriously high alcohol wines that are definitely more than 15%, sometimes up to 17%. It will burn the hair on your nose when you smell it. I'm you, serious. <laughs> You know it, yeah. and and but they're also very fruity, and mm-hmm. people consider call them uh, refer to them as jammy. They smell and taste like really, really concentrated fruit. And then we go to the really sweet side, not all the way back to the white zen, but the late harvest zen. And in most cases, this is a dessert wine. The again, the grapes are extremely ripe and often noticeable re- residual sugar, much more than the one you were just talking about, like 1% to 3% residual sugar. There's it's, a lot of sugar. And, yeah. and high viscosity. They're very dense. They kind of feel like they, they coat the glass more and things like that because of that mm-hmm. like thickness. And then you got Zinfandel Port, which is a fortified dessert wine that's made from overripe grapes mm-hmm. with grape spirits that are added to stop that fermentation before all the sugar is converted to alcohol. And that's something that you're going to want to pair with like dark chocolate or something. All right. I, did everyone take notes on all of that? Because that was a lot of information about Zin. I there's, love it, though. There's a lot of different ways that Zin can right, right. So you can plan your entire Thanksgiving feast with just this varietal. There's a style of Zin for pretty much every course. Um, it's notorious for changing depending on where it's grown and mm-hmm. how it's vinified, and also the age of the vines. It's recognized as one of the most terroir-driven grapes because of its expression of the soils and climate where it's grown. And you know that in the U.S., uh, regulations require that Zinfandel and Primitivo be identified separately, even though they're the the same same, grape. Right. For the longest time, you know, Americans thought that Zinfandel was a wine that, or or the grape, was uh, only grown here and made here. But in the 1960s, um, the connection started being made with the grape you just mentioned in Italy, the Primitivo. And people believed it was an Italian grape. And when it comes right down to it, neither were true. Yeah, it was a big mystery until our old friend Science stepped up and Mm -hmm. DNA testing made some revelations. But it still took an intrepid wine geek to find the origin of this variety. So here's a story from the official Zinfandel group called the Zinfandel Advocates and Producers. I love that there's an official group. There is, yeah. There's there's a Petit Syrah one. There's an official mm-hmm. group, I think, for almost every uh, grape variety. What is the acronym for this? ZAP. <laughs> Zinfandel Advocates and Producers. Yeah, you know they have it. a huge tasting coming up in San Francisco in January. Okay. In the 18th century, there was a priest named Don Francesco Filippo Indelicati, and he had a fondness for wine. So he sourced some grapes from Croatia, including one called Tribidrag, and he planted that in Liponti, Italy. He noticed that the Tribidag grapes seemed to ripen before any other grapes, so he started calling them Primitivo, ah, which means first, first one. Right. And that name stuck. So as the grapes were so easy to manage with the surrounding climate, Primitivo took off like wildfire throughout Puglia in Italy, which is, if you look at it and you look at it as a boot, Puglia is the heel, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the high, it Way was like down a stiletto there. Yeah. heel. 
Uh, and that became the most commonly planted grape in that region. Meanwhile, the Tribidag grape also arrived in Boston in 1829. It came through Vienna, where it had been taken by the Habsburg monarchy that had ruled over Croatia for a while. So then in Boston, it was received by a horticulturalist named George Gibbs. And there he used it mainly as a table grape, and um, he called it Zenfendel. And that was a play on its Hungarian name. Okay, I'm going to spell this. Okay. T-Z-I-N-I-F-A with an accent, N-D-L-I. All right. Give that a shot. No. (laughs) Zinifandli? I don't know. I don't speak Hungarian. But so that's what it is. Okay. Um, So then Gibbs moved to California to follow the gold rush in 1850. And he took that Zinfandel with him. And in 1857... He planted them, and they were used for winemaking for the first time in North America at Oak Knoll Vineyard in northern Napa. The wine was received so well that Zinfandel production boomed almost overnight, and by the 1890s, it had gone from being used as a table grape to being the most commonly produced variety of wine in the United States. Hmm. Little did Italy or United States know that Primitivo and Zinfandel were not unique and not their own grape. So fast forward a little bit. In the late 60s, a University of uh, California Davis professor noticed that Primitivo and Zen were an awful lot alike. So he brought some of the Primitivo back to the States. And um, that's when they were declared identical. Then in the 90s, there was a, a, a big DNA analysis and it was revealed that they were in fact the same, but still no one knew where they had originated. That's where we're, this whole thing starts at. So at one point, people were convinced that the grapes were descendants of a Croatian grape. Here's my turn to pronounce something really awesome. Pavlak Mali. That's not hard. That's good. Well, no, but there's another one coming up. Just wait. (laughs) The DNA analysis proved that the grape was the child of the Zen Primitivo, not the parent. So we're still trying to figure out where this grape comes from. So these researchers literally traipse through all kinds of ancient vineyards, sampling and analyze all, all these old vines. And they're trying to find where this grape came from. And they couldn't find anything on mainland Croatia. Right. So they were doing this for like a decade. And finally, in early 2000s, the breakthrough came on the Dalmatian coast of all places. After sampling a vine in Castelnove, it was determined that the grape in question was, all right, here's my turn to pronounce it. Krzenak Kastelanski. Yeah. (laughs) C-R-L-J-E-N-A-K for anybody taking notes at home and wants to look it up. K-A-S-T-E-L-A-N-S-K-I. You know, only nine vines existed in a vineyard of thousands of other varieties. So that was a pretty cool discovery. And it took uh, nearly 50 years to be certain. But alas, the true origin of the grape of Zinfandel Primitivo was found. And their history is finally unraveled. Let's get a glass of... Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I'm going to order that the next uh, happy hour and see what they do. Sounds delicious. So Zinfandel is thought to be one of the oldest grape varietals from which wine is still being made. There's evidence that places the first Zinfandel wine ancestors in the Caucasus at approximately 6,000 BC. So let's fast forward again. It came to the U.S. where it was grown as a table grape for a while in the Northeast. And then during the gold rush, it made its way over to the West Coast. It did really well because timber and wire were scarce and Zinfandel grapes could be cultivated using traditional European head pruning Mm -hmm. techniques. So it didn't require any special equipment or any of those scarce resources to do the trellising that was kind of traditional with a lot of the the French grape varietals. And that technique is still used today for Zinfandel. The wine grapes appeal grew exponentially during this time because it grew vigorously and provided miners with a versatile and substantial beverage, which I don't know much about the Old West and the Gold Rush days, but I think they might have had a little fun with the wine. I think so. When you see those old vine grapes growing, like 
someone's crazy hair. You know, it's just all over the place. I'm thinking, wow, that's incredible. And after the uh, after the gold rush, uh, 1849, Zinfandel's expansion into the 20th century is really a testament to its hardy constitution. Uh, most of California's vineyards were destroyed by phylloxera in the late 1800s, which is a, a huge deal. Zinfandel wines were among the first ones replanted on the rootstock started around 1885. Yeah, you remember in uh, the phylloxera epidemic, um, all of these European grapevines had to be grafted onto American rootstock, which right. is Vitis labrusca instead of Vitis vinifera, because the Vitis vinifera rootstock is the one that is susceptible to that phylloxera mm-hmm. uh, outbreak, and that really shrivels up and kills all those vines. So Zinfandel being one of the first ones. And it became one of the most important varietals among California red table wines in the 1888 census actually showed that over one-third of all of the grapevines were Zinfandel. Isn't that interesting? You know, and Zin's one of those weird ones. It kind of flew under the radar because people didn't pay as much attention to it because it didn't have that French lineage that had all the cachet because it was really cool to have French wine at the time, you know. A Cabernet, Merlot, even Syrah was kind of popular and people Mm kind of were more interested in where it came from. But the Zinfandel, nobody really even knew where it came from at the time. So they were kind of like, yeah, you know, that's the thing. But (laughs) it just kind of hung out. It did a lot of the bulk production. And then White Zin happened. And as cheesy as that era may have been, notwithstanding your Behringer, (laughs) it saved a lot of those old Zinfandel vines from being ripped out in favor Mm -hmm. of more valued varieties like Merlot, Cab, and Chardonnay. And old vine really is a thing when it comes to Zin, and every variety likes to talk about old vines, let's be honest, but it seems to be more of a thing with Zinfandel. And uh, I'd like to point out that there is really no regulation of what, quote, old vine really means. Uh, You can legally put it on pretty much any label, and there's no one who's been busted or, you know, called before any board because they lied about it, but uh, what really continues, uh, what really is an old vine is is questionable. 30, 50, 100 years? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, there's really not been any industry-wide agreement on what old vine actually means. And because, you know, they, they thought about trying to regulate it and they just couldn't come up to an agreement on what it would be. But um, so, you know, they just kind of left it where it, where it laid uh, underneath the old grapevine. <laughs> but age does play an especially important role with Zin because it's a prolific producer of grape clusters and when it's when it's a young vine. So Zin, kind of like people, puts out a ton of fruit, but it's not really able to ripen it to an ideal situation for good red wine. So the older the vine, the fewer the grapes, and the better the wine. So they produce a lower quantity of fruit, resulting in a more concentrated flavor, flavorful grape. Uh, Zin is also one of those vines, though, that keeps on giving. It can continue to produce pretty good quantities well past 100 years old. I mean, that's 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 going pretty good. Those are oldies. And, you know, it's weird because a lot of uh, California's old vines have always been dry farmed because if you think about it 100 years ago, irrigation was not really right. a thing. So that means that those roots had to dig extra deep into the soil in order to uh, get what they need as far as water and things because they're always reaching deeper to get that water if it's not coming from the surface. And that's where you get a lot of flavor complexities like uh, and microbial activity. Um, and that kind of helps keep things, you know, more complex, which is another one of those obscure wine terms. Right. And, you know, some winemakers and growers, to them, old vines have another value that's distinct from how they translate into wine. I mean, they're they're historic. They're artifacts. They're just what you said. They've been around for, for centuries at sometimes. And, and they're like genetic repositories, if you want to say, of, of grape varieties that other ones are near extinction that have been around that long. And these, these vineyards, it was uh, quoted, I think, from the um, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, the vineyards capture a way of farming that is just no longer done. Right. 
Uh, they're widely spaced, dry-farmed head prunes. They speak of a pre-industrial, maybe even pre-financial era in <laughs> California viticulture, if you can imagine that. So for people who want to intervene less in the vineyard, these old uh, old vines and old sites are, are kind of like a time machine back to uh, pre-industrial and, and pre-financial. And, you know, anyone listening to this who is common sense economics, Julie, we haven't even talked about the cost. And this is something that can't be ignored. I mean, you look at these grapes. We, we just told you they were lower yields. They were planted all crazy. And, uh, you know, and, and the modern vineyards are, are very easy to harvest. You can just take the trucks down there and, and get them all out. And some wineries or vineyard owners just aren't seeing the value in keeping a lot of these old vines around anymore. Yeah, because you got the yield that's so low. Cost of farming the vineyard's so high for less volume. The question becomes, what are people willing to pay for Zinfandel? Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even if it's from vines that are more than 100 years old. What can you charge for a bottle of old vines in, Max? I mean, uh, what would you be willing to pay? Gosh, you know, because I know a little more about what's in that bottle, I, I guess if I was out, I'd pay 50 bucks. But I mean, I would I would really think twice about that because then I'm looking at a $50 cab over there that I'm thinking... You know, yeah. I it, it's it's quite it's questionable. I think thirty five maybe most people would be uh, willing to come out a pocket for, but when you're in a restaurant and then you're looking at a zen that's a hundred bucks, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing yeah. to ask people to do. I mean, it just doesn't have unfortunately mm-hmm. the cachet of that cabernet. People are willing to shell out the bucks for the cab, mm-hmm. but the zen not so much. Um, and also ageability of zen. Let's talk about that. I I got burned so bad. I got this case of zen. I was <laughs> oh, so no. excited. I loved it, and I waited too long to open it. Zen has you need to get that going right. within like 10 years, preferably seven. Just because it's an old vine doesn't mean it's going to be good yeah. when it's old in the bottle also. I mean, some of them may hold up, but boy, it's a heartbreak when they don't. Yeah. So yeah, I waited too long on some Zins and I was, I was super sad. But anyway. Did, and you, then, did you make vinegar out of it? No, I just made tears out of <laughs> no. it. I just cried and I dumped it out. And yeah. I, they were signed bottles and everything. I was so proud of myself oh, for holding man. on to them. I'll be honest, I kind of forgot I had them. And then yeah. I got <laughs> Anyway, so about its Americanness, it's interesting to note here that there's a big difference in how vigorously the vines grow and the grape cluster sizes are. That makes Zinfandel really quite different from its genetic twins over in Italy and even in the Dalmatian Coast area. When you add the different ways that American winemakers and vineyard managers deal with the grape, and it's, it's a very different wine with a particular flavor profile and a truly American name. Uh, it's currently grown in seven, 45 of California's 58 counties, so it may be a consideration for your Thanksgiving Americana Fest. I have a friend who always serves Zenfandel at her, her Thanksgiving. She says, I just think this grape is so underrated when it comes to the flavors that you have at the table when you're looking at the chutneys and the berries and, and sometimes dried meats, <laughs> over-dried <laughs> meats. I, you know, I really, really love Zinfandel's in the Russian River Valley in Sonoma and, and Dry Creek is next. Like, things like Limerick Lane and um, Marietta Cellars and oh, Clay Mortson. He's been to this area a lot of times. He makes some beautiful, I mean, just luscious, beautiful Zen. So does Martinelli. Yeah, Martinelli has one. and that, But that'll run you up. There's um, a vineyard called Jackass Vineyard. I can say mm-hmm. that because it's referencing a donkey. Um, <laughs> that that one's like $125. It's, it's definitely more than uh, 100 bucks there. That's not a joke. Not kidding. <laughs> uh, not kidding at all, um, even with a name like that. <laughs> but it's, it's beloved. Uh, people really love it. My favorite one that I like to suggest for people is Hendry Zinfandel. It's a vineyard that's in... Um, Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of in the southern part of Napa Valley. He has two different plots of Zinfandel, and um, just and he vinifies them the same, but they have very different and distinct 
flavor profiles. Mm. One is uh, very feminine with a light violet floral kind of a feeling to it. The other one is a more masculine, kind of spicy, bold, a little bit more fruit forward. Same vines, planted at the same time, same clone, same everything, just different vineyard. Right. That so. sounds good. I like that. I like that. The one that you described as masculine and bold with some grilled meats. Yeah. And I oh. like that floral one for all of all the sides for uh, Thanksgiving. Do you have any uh, before we wrap up because we're almost out of time? What are your Thanksgiving go to wines? We need to do some suggestions. You know, tomorrow today's Zinfandel Day. So right. we can talk about that. But what would you suggest uh, for people uh, putting together their wine list? You know, we mentioned a rosé of Zin earlier. And I think rosés, when you get a nice dry one, they really come complement food quite well and they can go with the turkey they can go uh, as an aperitif um, and bubbles of course bubbles can go from beginning to end because they cut through any fat they're good with the salty foods and they're festive for and the holiday they're also lower in calories than most yes. wines the bubbles have fewer calories so if you're watching your calories and you're trying to be a, a good person uh, with the <laughs> uh, the uh, calorie content or you're just trying to eat good more, luck <laughs> if you're trying yeah. to eat more mashed potatoes and yeah. gravy um, and <laughs> cut your calories in your wine uh, sparkling has you know maybe like 10, 20 calories less per glass. Pinot Noir. Can never go wrong with Pinot Noir. One of the the best food wines. I do not like Chardonnay for my Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think it's It's got a little bit too much going on there. Yeah. I just say no to that. I I hear you. I agree with that. But I would maybe go with the, um, when you're preparing things, you know, when people are just showing up, get like a, a nice uh, Roussan, Marsan. Oh, now you're a talking. A nice Rhone mm-hmm. white blend would be really nice for welcoming guests. And then, of course, the bubbles. And it's always good to have at least a dry white wine that's kind of indistinct, like a Pinot Grigio. Keep that thing chilled for the people who just really don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and also to put into when you deglaze your turkey pan, mm-hmm. you know, to get your gravy going and stuff like that, it's always nice to have just a handy bottle of white wine that you're not, you know, Dry in love white. with, yeah. you know, that doesn't, isn't going to overwhelm with the flavor. So it's always good to have those little guys around. What about you? Any reds that I, cause I only mentioned one red and I know you like red too. Beaujolais? Uh. Yeah, Gamay. man. Okay, and uh, that's another thing to discuss. It's Beaujolais Nouveau time. So mm-hmm. those are going to be on the shelf. Uh, they're inexpensive. They are not built to last. So uh, those are to be consumed quickly. Yeah. But they are not to be confused with actual Beaujolais. Beaujolais Nouveau is this year's release of the Gamay that has grown mm-hmm. in the Beaujolais region just to say, hey, this is what the grapes are tasting like this year before we actually make it into really good wine. Yeah. Um, if you really want to try Beaujolais, get a Cru Beaujolais. If you like Pinot Noir, try uh, the Cru of Morgon, which is in Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. Morgon has a, a nice earthy kind of a feel to it. And if you like a little bit more, fla- uh, like, you know, like a little bit lighter, uh, fruit forward, um, Easy drinking, kind of almost floral-ish. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, like violet kind of Mm -hmm. floweriness. Then go up to um, Brewy, B-R-O-U-I-L-L-Y, I I think it's two L's. But that's a nice crew. So any of the crew Beaujolais, you're going to pick a winner. Right. And in the Beaujolais Nouveau, as you said, it's it's not to be aged. It's it's not to be uh, oohed and awed over... But the bottles are festive and they look great on the Thanksgiving table. You you got to, but you got to put a chill on it. Too. Yeah, put a little chill. Yeah. Definitely need a chill yeah. on that. So any of the arms and legs sticking out with its, its youthfulness yeah. will not uh, <laughs> be be hitting you again. I'm hungry the now. Face. Now it's time to go and and chill our wines and uh, get our our turkeys. If you're not brining yet. You might be too late to brine, but (laughs) (laughs) start considering putting together uh, that Thanksgiving meal. Gina, thanks so much for being on the show today. That was fun. Thank you for having me. 
Gina is my co-host and co-conspirator on our podcast, Grape Minds, which you can find on NPR One, our WGCU app, or wherever you find our podcasts. It's WGCU's Grape Minds. Wrapping up today from Gulf Coast Live, our show today was produced by Mike Canary and myself. Our director is Richard Chin Kui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. Gulf Coast Live is made possible through the generous support of the Elizabeth B. McGraw Foundation. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Julie Glenn. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. That was Gina Birch and I on Gulf Coast Live this week talking about all things Zen and Thanksgiving wines. Hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for our next podcast in which we continue the Zodiac series to talk about our friends, the party people, the Sagittarians. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Mannon. To get in touch, check greatminds.org. Thanks for listening.